I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. From PRI Public Radio International, it's... Live audience in Mississippi Studios in Portland, Oregon. It's Livewire with authors Sherman Alexi and Garrett Conley, with music from Shovels and Rope and our fabulous house band. And now, the host of Livewire. He used his family connections to get here, by which we mean his mom drove to the show. Luke Burbank! Wow. This week's show is part of the Wordstock Festival of Books here in Portland, and our theme is Family Ties. Uh, Not the TV show starring Michael J. Fox, although that is a masterpiece. I think we can all agree. We're talking about the ways that people relate to each other within families this hour, and we've got some authors who've written some really interesting stuff on that topic. You know, there's so many different ways for families to occur. There are people that are really close to their birth family, There are other people who can't get away from them fast enough, (laughs) and they get into adult life, and they sort of create their own family structure uh, with people that they choose to be, you know, near. I'm the oldest of seven kids. I come from a a really tight-knit family, but we're all grown up now and out of the house, and we have families of our own. A lot of us are married, and it's really hard to get together because we live in different places, and we're all just super busy, but there is... One meetup that we manage to get to every single week. It's almost like a sacred space for the Burbank family. Uh, it's on Sundays, and it is a text chain called Hawk Squad, where we talk about how the Seattle Seahawks game is going. <laughs> and it's amazing because in the text chain, all of the dynamics that play out in real life also play out as we're talking about the football game. I actually have, uh, on my phone, I I have it up right now, and I wanted to just kind of, like, show you how it tends to go, okay? So this is from a recent game. This is actually my family talking about Seahawk football uh, in the Hawk Squad text chain. My mom is the one who always usually sort of starts it out. I think she really looks forward to us all getting together. So uh, at 1.30, she says, let's go Hawks. And then right, like, 10 seconds later, my sister Hannah, who's, like, the good kid, 
she says, here we go. Then my brother Sam kind of slides in. He says, let's go. And then I say uh, a minute later, let's do this. Because I have to be different. I can't just say, let's go. That's too predictable. I'm the cool, delicate snowflake of the family. <laughs> so eventually everybody in the family has checked in except my youngest brother, David. Okay, David like takes the games really seriously. So my mom says, where's my third squad son? And then David says, incredibly anxious, that's where I am, mom. <laughs> so I'll spare you, Th these are like 100,000 messages long, but we'll jump to the middle of the game. The Seahawks are playing uh, pretty badly, and my sister Sarah says, this is painful to watch. Our offense looks injured and terrible. And then my mom, when the games aren't going well, my mom wants to sort of be a soothing voice for the family, but she doesn't really understand football. But she really understands the Bible. So a lot of the stuff she says about football sounds oddly biblical. So her response to my sister is, only the hawks can redeem what is unredeemable. <laughs> Seems like the stakes are really high for my mom. So a little later in the game, the Seahawks drop this super critical pass, and David, the one who takes it really seriously, all caps, you gotta be kidding me. My mom, please keep your cool, Davey. <laughs> David, I'm keeping it cool, Mom. So eventually, the Seahawks win this game on like the last play. It's a very dramatic thing, and I, I chime in. I say, that took a year off my life. My sister Hannah says, way to go. You called it, Mama. Suck up. Sam, my brother's like, phew. David, the realist, is like, uh, I'm not feeling very good about this team. And then this is when my dad, after four hours, decides to add in his first contribution to the Hawk Squad chain. He just writes, yeah, Y-A-A-H-H-H-H-H-H-H, exclamation point, exclamation point, two crying emojis and a smiling emoji. I feel like my dad is still learning how to use emojis. <laughs> so this is not high-level football commentary going on. And so the question is, why do we actually do this? And I think it's because it's not about the football, right? Like, this is a chance for my family to get together on a weekly basis and encourage each other and commiserate and comfort. Because what has evolved now for this Hawk Squad chain is... All of the important family news happens. When my little brother got accepted to college, he told us in the Hawk Squad. When my nephew, who is named Luke, by the way, named for me, not a big deal, I'm not letting it go to my head. My little nephew Luke was born, it was announced on the Hawk Squad. When my mom was in a car accident and totaled her car and was really shaken up, my dad told us in the Hawk Squad text chain. So... I guess my point is, if you are looking for insightful football analysis, my family's text chain is not the place to go for that. If you are looking for an example of how a group of people subtly show they love each other on a weekly basis, it's actually a really good place for that. And I feel super lucky to get to be part of it. So I'm excited to talk about family ties this week. Let's get our first guest out here. All right. Since we're talking about family connections this hour, we were wondering... What if just being yourself meant you were actually violating every core belief that your family holds dear? That is exactly where Garrett Conley found himself at age 19 when his strict Baptist family found out he was gay. 
The solution was to send him away to a program that promised to cure his homosexuality. And now he's not gay anymore. Just kidding. Garrett's journey to be true to himself while maintaining his family ties is laid out in his debut book, a memoir titled Boy Erased. Please welcome Garrett Conley to Livewire. Garrett, welcome to Livewire. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. Give us a kind of a snapshot, Garrett, of the, of the home that you grew up in. You know, we'd always prayed several times a day as a family. We went to church all the time. We had all of our functions, our social functions were at church. But when I was 16, you know, we were sitting in church and he just started shaking and crying. And he went down the aisle and the preacher announced to everyone in the church that my father was going to be a preacher. He had not said anything about this earlier. Now, was this, I, I grew up in a, a kind of a similar church environment. Was this something that was planned out between your dad and the current pastor? Or was this a thing where the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. touched your dad in such a way that yes. it was now apparent to everyone that he was going to take a leadership role at this church? The Holy Spirit does a lot of touching yeah. in my family. <laughs> so, yeah, this was a total Holy Spirit moment. He was for shaking, crying. Yeah. And for my mom and me, it was more of a holy you know, S. Yes, holy S moment, um, because we had no idea that this was going to happen. And so our lives changed entirely after that. I mean, just to give you a few details, there were moments when we would go see even like a PG rated movie. And if someone said a cuss word in the movie, my dad would walk out. He was very serious about, you know, the, the sort of missionary Baptist ideas of what being a good man was. And at the same time, did you know you were gay? So I always describe this as having two narratives in my head at the same time. Basically, I totally knew I was gay. I mean, since the third grade, I had this really hot teacher, <laughs> Mr. Smith. Uh, if he's a, Shout out yeah. to Mr. Smith. Yeah. Formative really part hot. of Garrett's yeah. life. I actually bought a mailbox from Mr. Smith. Which was, I don't know why I thought that was like a romantic gesture. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Like a mailbox a you mailbo put in front of your yes. house? It was an Arkansas Razorbacks mailbox. I'm from Arkansas. And I was like, if I get him a mailbox, maybe he'll notice me and care about me. That is one of the strangest ways to get someone's attention I've ever... I know. My mom also helped me get the mailbox. I don't know how she didn't know I was gay. <laughs> I guess it was just such a weird detail that she was like, I don't know what that... I just have a weird kid. Um... <laughs> So, so you, on one level, you knew you were gay. Yeah, and then the other one was that it was actually impossible for me to be gay because I believed, I put this in quotes, literal interpretation of the Bible that the missionary Baptists have, that basically you cannot be gay. Like, God would not make people gay. There are eight passages. They're called the clobber passages because they're used to clobber gay people or LGBT. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's really messed up. Um, but, so I... I just grew up believing it was actually impossible, so I had two narratives in my head at the same time, and it was confusing. So your mom knew first that you were gay, right? Yeah, so uh, through a series of horrible circumstances, someone who had raped me called my mom, and then my mom like came to pick me up from college, and like he'd erroneously told her that I was living an openly gay lifestyle, I think in order to cover up what he'd done. And so my mom came to pick me up, and she sent me to my dad, who's, you know, the head of the household, he's going to figure things out. 
And he took me into his bedroom and he said, well, there are two options here. If you do not go to conversion therapy, which he'd heard about from the church, uh, you won't see your family again. Or wow. you can just go somewhere else. Uh, we're talking to Garrett Conley. His new book is Boy Erased. It's about his life growing up in Arkansas and also being a gay man in a, a religious environment that was really not hospitable to that. I think a lot of people, when they hear that you went to the conversion camp or program, would be confused by that. They would think, well, you know you're gay. Why would you mm -hmm. do this? But I think it's hard to understand unless you grew up in a church like this, is you internalize a ton of this stuff, and it's very possible to believe that you might be cured of being gay. Is that kind of what you were thinking? Yeah, I mean, these ideas are in the water in these small towns throughout America, not just in the South, all over. And you grow up hearing that LGBTQ people are predators. You hear that, you know, if you are openly gay in a city somewhere, you're going to eventually die of AIDS. You know, this is like the, the narrative that we always heard. It's this fear mongering that exists in these towns. So, you know, there's that layer. I always say you don't have to go to conversion therapy to go to conversion therapy. You just have to be in this country, queer, in a small town. Like, that's basically conversion therapy. Right. And Next thing you know, you're buying Arkansas <laughs> Razor mailboxes exactly. for people. It's the first step. <laughs> it didn't work, though. Yeah. Um, spoiler. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I think it's just really difficult to get out of those situations. And I think you grow up believing that there's no other option. And that there's another layer on top of that, which is that you just learned that your parents' love is not unconditional. Wow. Right? Which, you know, we have a good relationship now. And I do believe that they loved me throughout the entire process. And that was sort of the problem, is that they were doing something horrible out of love. But you know, when you hear those words, like, you're never going to see your family again, there are very few options remaining. Yeah. I want to hear about what happened when you actually got to this program. Uh, we got to take a quick break, though. Uh, we have Garrett Conley here. His new book is Boy Erased. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. We will be right back. Livewire is brought to you in part by Ergo Depot. Ergo Depot makes the desk that I use when I am doing the Livewire radio show. I don't want to overstate it, but I don't know if I could do the show without it. One, because it's where I put my script. Otherwise, I'd just be holding it, which would be kind of weird. Two, because the Jarvis desk that they build at Ergo Depot, it goes up, it goes down, you can set it at any height that works for you. In fact, it's just one of a number of amazing pieces of home and office furniture that will help you keep moving, even when you're doing things that might traditionally involve sitting down for long stretches of time. Just because you go to an office does not mean that you have to sit there like a lump. Move around. Do what your body was designed to do, even when you're at work, whether you're at the office or in your home office. Ergo Depot. They take care of us over at Livewire, and they're going to take care of you. You can find out more by going to ergodepot.com. Welcome back to Livewire Radio. We're coming to you from Mississippi Studios in Portland, Oregon this week. We're part of the Wordstock Portland Festival of Books. And one of the people here for that is Garrett Conley. He is the author of a new book called Boy Erased. This uh, describes your life growing up being a gay man in a family that was not ready for that because of the religious background. I guess your choice was go to this gay conversion program or cut all ties with your family. So at age 19, you choose to go to this 
conversion program? What, what was it like? Well, actually, before going at 19, I did a few intro sessions at 18, and they were like these uh, one-on-one therapy sessions with a conversion therapist. He put that in air quotes for I, people I listening have, on the radio. I think the I, whole, I hope those are implied now that those places have been yeah. uh, mostly debunked. And in fact, I think in certain states, five, actually yeah. outlawed. Yeah. So, five, yeah. Five. So put your own air quotes on that, listeners on the radio. Basically, the whole conversation is in air quotes. Right. Most of what I have to describe. That describes a lot of live wire. <laughs> Basically, the whole show is in air quotes. Yeah. <laughs> so I did these one-on-one therapy sessions, and the extent of these therapy sessions were a therapist saying, okay, describe to me your sexual history or your fantasies. I know. And so, <laughs> and so I would describe the, you know, in detail, as much detail as I could, what was going on with me, and then he would say that's shameful and disgusting and God doesn't like it, and then he would give me a bunch of Bible verses to read so that I could change my thought patterns. When I went to the residential program, Love in Action, there were so many different practices they were doing. So one thing they made us do was called a genogram, which is actually used in normal therapy sessions, but they changed it in a very interesting way in which they added sin symbols, air quotes again. Well, what's Um, a genogram? A genogram is a family tree. So it's a family tree, and usually it traces abuse throughout your family so that you can sort of understand where you're coming from. But in this case... They had us do what were called sin symbols next to your family members' names. So if someone had had an abortion, you put an A-B next to their name. If someone uh, had ever gambled, you put a dollar sign next to their name. <laughs> uh, that sounds like they did okay at it. I know. Basically, the, it was. this is just to give you an idea. I mean, I, I, it's hard to explain, but this was based off of the, the idea in the Bible that the sins of the fathers go to the sons. Um, it's generational sin, which if you ever grew up in these churches, you know, is a very popular idea. Like if your parents do something really bad, you could be bad too. Um, so I put an H next to my name for homosexuality and I could look at my family tree and say, okay, well, that's what turned me gay. Did you at any point in, in this process uh, think that it was working? I thought it was completely insane. But I also thought, you know, the Bible is full of all these stories of crazy things producing miracles, you know. And if you even just look at Jesus' parables, they sound insane, like an acid trip sometimes. <laughs> and, and, but then they have this insight, and you're like, oh, okay, I get it. So I guess I was just waiting for the aha moment. Um, mm-hmm. And I was, I was writing short stories at the time, but they also, you couldn't take anything into the therapy sessions at all, like nothing on your person could enter the therapy sessions. So they took my uh, notebook that I was writing stories in and they ripped pages of a short story out. And, you know, I was using that as a way to sort of journal and figure out what my journey was and if this was going to work. But they took that away from me. And so I didn't even have that. It was like I was being told that nothing that I thought on my own was correct. Well, how did you get out of this thing then? So I had this exercise called the lie chair, and it was an empty chair that I had to sit across from and imagine my father sitting in, in front of the entire group of the people that were there for therapy. And just so you know, also, uh, people that were there for therapy, they were dealing with pedophilia, bestiality, mental illness, marriage problems. I mean, we were all grouped together under this idea that we were sexually addicted to something. So this is my therapy group, right? Yeah. Which is not very helpful. Yeah. 
Sounds like a very messed up version of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. <laughs> it is. I mean, it is. Anybody try to pick up a sink at any point during the proceedings? No. <laughs> um, but I had to sit across from this empty chair and yell at an invisible father with the idea being that, of course, every gay man has intense anger issues with his father. That was their assumption. And I said in front of the entire group, I'm not angry at my father. I actually love him. And I feel really sad that this is happening. And one very... I don't know how to say this. Flaming therapist, um, allegedly ex-gay. Yes, he was therapist. Very, very ex-gay, but not. Um, and and he was just like, I don't think that you're actually doing this for the right reasons. Um, you you don't seem to be angry at your father, and this doesn't fit our models. And I was like, I don't, I don't. I'm sorry, but this is my emotional response right now. Like you're, in, I'm in therapy. Help me. Um, and so they kept getting more combative, and I just walked out. And I went to the reception desk, and I said, I need my phone back. I need to call my mom. And the receptionist said, you can't. And I said, it's a medical emergency, because I knew that would work. And so, <laughs> I, so I took the phone back, called my mom. She came to pick me up. And um, the counselor came to the side of the car window, and he was like, your son needs so much more therapy. He has so much, like, gayness in him. Um, <laughs> And he was like, he needs three months, years. He needs to drop out of college. He I mean, is never allowed to listen to a yeah, share record. No, I can't. I couldn't even go to into... cut him off cold turkey. <laughs> I was told that I couldn't go into malls of any kind. Like, I guess I was going to go shopping, and that would turn me gay. Um, I couldn't even go into bookstores, which is crazy. Secular bookstores. I could go into Christian ones. Yeah. So, so your, your mom had the wherewithal, I guess, to sort of get you out of that situation. Yeah, at that moment, um, she knew something was up, and she said, you know, a sentence that she should have said a long time ago, which was, what are your qualifications? That's what she said to the guy at her window, and he said, I am a marriage counselor, and I went through Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and my mom was like, what in the hell is this counselor doing, you know, trying to teach my gay son to be straight? And so she drove me away, and um, she asked me a very simple question, which was, are you going to commit suicide? Because she had heard that people were suicidal there. And I don't know if I meant it. I mean, I, was, I had suicidal ideation, but I just said yes, because I was like, this is going to be the answer that will satisfy my parents. Like, would they rather have a gay son or a dead son? Um, and so when I went back home, my dad was like, did it work? And I said, not quite. <laughs> And then there was radio silence for a very long time. And now we're in a better place. So, so through all of this, you have managed to knit together some sort of relationship with your family? Yeah, my mom is very supportive. She actually, um, we had a reading in Arkansas, and she stood up at the end of it and gave her entire story. And people were taking their cell phones out and recording it. I mean, it was so eloquent. And so she's finally having this moment where she's telling her own story very eloquently. And it was really touching to see that. She's very supportive. Is it hard for you to... I mean, I assume your parents still believe in the literal word of God? Yes. My mom less so now. Is it hard for you to know that these people you love, your parents, on some... Maybe it's just your father now, on some basic level, think that you're going to hell? Yeah. I mean... The good thing about Baptists is they always believe once saved, always saved. I try to spin that on my parents. They're yeah. not no, they buying don't, it. No, they don't buy it. You've done too it's, much. It started a few arguments at Thanksgiving. I know. 
Well, I think it's the idea that, like, if you're doing such horrible stuff like I am, like being totally gay and talking about it and, you know, having a gay relationship, then you must never have been saved. You know, like, it must have been a lie. So wow. maybe that's what they think. But my dad, you know, we have all sorts of theological arguments. And I also give him a lot of poetry. He started liking poetry suddenly, which I think is the Holy Spirit touching him. It's got to be. Arkansas... Yeah. pastor gets into poetry in, yeah. in his 60s. He's he's reading Walt Whitman, which is like the queerest poet. <laughs> right? he's, he just wants to have sex with everyone. And But my dad's like, these lines are really cool. I'm like, yeah, they are. <laughs> well... If you want to hear more of Garrett's story, you got to pick up this book, Boy Erased. It's really well written. It's a fascinating story. Garrett, thanks for coming on Livewire, man. Thank you so much. This week's show is served to you by Whole Foods Market. Holiday meals just like mom used to make, but without the long lines dented can of cranberry sauce, and reckless cart operator injuries. Whole Foods Market has all the essentials for a perfect holiday dinner. Make mom proud. More info at wholefoodsmarket.com. All right, this is Livewire Radio. Our theme this week is Family Ties, and if you're doing a public radio variety show with that theme, you're pretty much legally required to have shovels and rope as your musical guest. For one, the band's members... Carrie Ann Hurst and Michael Trent are, in fact, married to each other, but also because their rowdy, rootsy, rootin' tootin' music will make you think you are at an old-fashioned family hootenanny. If your family was made up of professional musicians who had really honed their stuff. <laughs> their latest album is Little Seeds. Please welcome Shovels and Rope to Livewire. much for having us today. Hello. Hello there. Welcome to the program. Thanks for uh, coming by. Hello. Thank you so much for having us. We've always wanted to come here. Carrie, I, I'd heard that, I mean, a lot of your, your songs that the two of you write are based on your real life. I'd heard that your family actually asked you to stop writing songs with them in the songs. Well, before I, we got into Shovels and Rope, I, I did get into a little bit of trouble for harvesting, you know, from my own, my, my side of the family's uh, Southern Gothic experience. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of, you know, un, the unfortunate side of a little bit of historical, like, poverty and, you know, downward Southern mobility. Uh, it does result in some great material and... Uh, <laughs> But that was so diplomatic, the way you put that. <laughs> Historical southern downward mobility. <laughs> so did re really, did, did somebody in your family say, hey, could you like not, could you maybe not say, put us totally on blast like that? You know, it wasn't so much like that. In fact, with this record, when we made Little Seeds, it was the most personal record we've made um, because there's just, you know, starting a family and our parents are getting older and Michael's father is sick and we just, so it was super sensitive and the names weren't changed to protect the innocent necessarily. So <laughs> we, you know, we, we actually got permission from our family this time to kind of like talk about things that were, you know, stories that are going on in everybody's lives. Um, and so that was kind of a nice, a nice thing to actually get permission to harvest from our actual, not just our experience, but our family at large. So. 
would you then uh, like play the songs for them in, in their kind of half a done form? No, uh, we completed <laughs> the record first, <laughs> packaged it. <laughs> And then that was more uh, of a, uh, a what was it uh, forgiveness rather than we, permission we, kind yeah, of a situation. We asked Sent them a link. Yeah. <laughs> there goes the pragmatism I was working on, you know. Yeah, yeah. What song are we gonna hear? We're gonna play a song called "I Know." I know exactly what you think you are I know exactly what you think you are You left your little notebook laying on the bar I know exactly what you think you are Everybody's saying that you're gonna go far I know exactly what you think you are I know exactly where you're going next I know exactly where you're going next Things are looking good for you, buddy, oh yes I know exactly where you're going next You got the smile and the style and the sizzle and the sex I know exactly where you're going next Take it all I was at the same shows he used to hang around. I know exactly where you got that sound. See you in a year on your way back down. Cause I know exactly where you found that sound. Somebody took your towel. I know exactly how you feel right now. You know there used to be a day when I would try to help you out. I know exactly how you feel. Take it all. Take it now. Call it even. Call it even. Call it even, baby. Take a bow. That's Shovels and Rope here on Livewire Radio. Thank you.
This week's show is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, an airline with over 800 daily departures to over 100 cities, even tropical un-Alaskan lands like Costa Rica and Hawaii. And with a name like Alaska, you know their air conditioning will be on point. (laughs) Alaska Airlines, fly nice. All right, our theme this week is family ties, and I have known our next guest for so long that I have to say he almost feels like family to me. When we met playing pickup basketball... I thought he was just a dude with a good jump shot who usually seemed to win the games that we were involved in. What I later learned was that he was also winning a lot of things off the court, you know, like National Book Awards and the Penn Faulkner Award, stuff like that. Sherman Alexie's career has included writing poetry, fiction, and young adult books, making movies, and now his latest project, a children's book titled Thunderboy Jr. Please welcome a guy who will always be able to back me down in the paint, Sherman Alexie. Luke, 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 Luke. Sherm, 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 Sherm. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here again. I'm always happy to be here. I'm not just saying that for the purposes of the intro. When you and I met, I just I wasn't familiar with your work at the time, and I had no idea that you were this huge deal in the literary world. I just knew you as a guy with a killer jump shot who went hard on the boards in pickup basketball. Yeah, I was vicious. Uh... <laughs> But, you know, relating back to the theme of the show, family ties, you know, we're the sons of people, then we become the fathers of people. And when you say family ties, you're talking about aging. Uh, I am now officially retired from pickup basketball. Really? Because of uh, chronic injuries. My back, uh, I had brain surgery in December to get a a non-cancerous tumor removed. My foot, my ankles, my knees... My pride. <laughs> this my... makes a lot of sense because you wrote on Twitter, you said that for Halloween, you were going as a middle-aged man staring down at 25 years of a sparsely forested slope towards death. <laughs> that was your Halloween costume That this was year. my outfit, yes. <laughs> Is that really how you feel, man? Yeah, I'm 50. Uh, my dad died at 62. So really, the biggest party I'm ever going to have is if I make it to 63. Probably a standing rock because the protest will still be going on. So uh, you could, you could sort of, yeah, it could be, you know, kind of killing two birds with one stone. Yes, well, but, but, yeah. That's a, a complicated metaphor for me to throw out related to that. Yeah, especially but. for a white guy, that was yeah. pretty amazing. Thank you. I want to talk about this new book of yours, Thunderboy Junior. It is great. Like Thank you. it is not just for kids, even though it is a picture book. Well. I mean, the great picture books are not just for the kids. I mean, one of the reasons for that is because the parent is reading it most of the time. So when you're writing a picture book, when you're trying to write the great picture book, when you have those huge ambitions for that, you're trying to write something that a parent is going to love to read or love to have memorized for the rest of their lives. (laughs) I mean, my kids are 19 and 16 now, but I still have all the picture books they love memorized simply because I read them 300 times a year. I wanted to write a book that would make parents all over the United States hate me. <laughs> but, but, but more than that, really, one of the primary reasons was, 
You know, there's a lack of brown-skinned protagonists in kids' literature anyway, and especially in the picture book world and contemporary images of, of a Native American kid. So I wanted to write a Native American picture book with this kid going through a specific cultural experience, but one that really applies outward, finding a new name, finding a new identity. It was interesting. As I was listening to you interview Garrett earlier in the show, I thought, you know, it's the same trajectory of somebody being who they are, but being given a name by their parents that doesn't fit who they know they're becoming. Being defined by forces outside of yourself and coming of age, even as a toddler, you can come of age and realize the name they gave me is not who I am. We have Sherman Alexi here, by the way, fabulous writer, has a new book out, Thunderboy Jr., about a kid who's got his dad's name, as you mentioned, and doesn't exactly know how to feel about that, your dad was named Sherman. Yes, Sherman. I'm Sherman Alexi Jr. So and this sounds like this might be ripped from the headlines of your actual I, life. It, it means I'm going to have to give you $105 at the end of this interview. Why so? Because that's what I pay my psychotherapist. <laughs> Sherman, can we have you lay down on the stool, <laughs> yes. please? It's going to be awkward, but it, it, it will. the therapy yeah. will go better. It also means you need to give me a prescription. Okay. I've or, got some stuff in the glove compartment yes. in my car. Yeah, I was going to say, or share yours. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, <laughs> But I mean, I, the this standard is, I, NPR cocktail of yeah. antidepressants and mood enhancers and red wine. <laughs> although, although I know you don't drink, so I mean, I think why I found the book powerful because I know you because I read it and I was like, this is Sherman's life to some degree. Yeah, well, I mean, the genesis for this book in particular was my father's funeral in 2003, and I happened to be standing at the foot of the grave, not for any specific indigenous reason. <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing about being Native. Every moment is supposed yeah. to have this incredible spiritual meaning. Yeah. The thing is, it's seductive, too, as a Native, because you want that to be true. So Everything you, you do is super packed with, yeah. like, importance. Yeah, like when room service came this morning, you know, I, I bowed. <laughs> and, um, and then ate every part of the omelet exactly. to honor it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, in fact, I'm wearing the shell as a necklace right yes. now. And, uh, but I happen to be standing at the foot of my father's grave because nothing's funnier than death. Uh, and the coffin lowered. And as the coffin lowered, the tombstone came into view, and the tombstone said, Sherman Alexi. Now, now, you patriarchal colonial men in this room and listening on the radio, I know that's a moment you never considered in your selfish, selfish, testosterone driven heads. Where you ever thought if things go as they should, my son is going to be looking at his name on a tombstone. Talk about father issues. Now, yeah. if things go well, if, if you and your son have a lifelong relationship that's rewarding and beneficial and, and joyous, then that's going to be a joyous moment. But if you had any sort of difficulty, any residual pain with your father, in other words, all of us... right then it's going to destroy you. And it destroyed me to see that. You think about your life flashing before your eyes. When they talk about that cliche when you're dying, my life flashed before my eyes looking at a tombstone with my name on it. And it's at a half a mile from the house where I grew up. That is really intense. Yeah. So I just said, how am I going to deal with this incredibly intense, painful, just debilitating moment? I'm going to write a kid's picture book. <laughs> 
I want to talk more about Thunderboy Jr. We do have to take a very short break. This is Live Wire Radio from PRI. We're coming to you from Mississippi Studios in Portland, Oregon. Back in just a moment. Hey, it's Luke reminding you that Livewire is brought to you by Livewire members. That's right. We got ourselves a league of extraordinary listeners. It's a very exclusive group. They keep Livewire in business. Here is how you can become a member of the league. You go to livewireradio.org. You go to our membership tab. And you sign up to make a recurring donation to the show. You'll help us keep making the Livewire radio show and podcast. And as a thank you, we will send you some amazing, cool gifts from Portland, Oregon. Head over to livewireradio.org to find out more. And thank you. Welcome back to Livewire Radio, coming to you from Portland, Oregon, as part of the Wordstock Festival this week. Our theme is Family Ties. We have Sherman Alexi here, author of so many great books, including Thunderboy Jr., his new picture book that's out with Juji Morales. How did you connect up with her? Because the illustrations in a book like this are as important as the words. More important. More important. Uh, I would say the book is 62% her and 38% me. Well, I wrote the book. We wrote the text. I worked on it with my editor for... A year and a half, two years. It's hard to write a picture book. Well, that's, I was going to ask you about that too, because like you've written these amazing works of poetry and narrative fiction, and then you're writing a book where the kid says, My name sounds like a fart. Yeah. That and seems you, easier. And, and it's not. I mean, it's really, I mean, we were debating that. Should I write that name makes me sound like a fart or a burp? Or should it be that name makes me sound like a burp or a fart? Like we, which was going to go yeah, first? we went back and forth on that. I mean, with, with meter and with rhythm, and there was a rhyme at one point that we took out. I mean, this was literally a month going back and forth on fart and burp. That is, when I read this book, I was like, that is going to be the page that every kid is looking forward to. And it is. It's amazing. When, you, when I've read it aloud, everybody breaks out laughing. And the thing is, it works because there is this tension in the book as well of this kid rising up against tradition, really, against being named for his father and his anger and his frustration. But how do you show a toddler's anger and frustration? And you have to be primal. And what's more primal than a fart or a burp? So it's funny and it's very simple, but it really gets at the heart of the way a a little kid might protest. So where would you rank writing a a kid's picture book in terms of degree of difficulty compared to other things you've created? Uh, Most difficult thing, a sonnet in iambic pentameter. And then the, and this really was wow. one of the most difficult things. And when we finally got it down to the words we wanted, when the narrative was there, then we started thinking about illustrators. So I said, send me all the brown people who can draw. And so she sent me 40 or 50 books by Asian Americans, Latino Americans, Native Americans, African Americans, some international folks. It was just a wide range of brownness because I, I knew I wanted somebody brown. And... I looked at all of them, and everybody was great, and I could have chose so many different styles. Anime, sort of a Jimmy Neutron look, sort of a more impressionistic look, much more Spongebob-y. There was all sorts of ways to do this. And then Juju Morales' book, which is called Nino Wrestles the World, ah. showed up, and it has this Mexican kid on the cover in his tidy whities with a Mexican wrestling mask on, <laughs> standing on top of the globe. And it was like, oh! <laughs> I mean, captured Boy energy perfectly in the cover, and I knew it was her. It was, it was love at first sight. And we sent her 
the manuscript, and she was really busy. She's really in demand. But the reason why she took the job, even though she had to carve out room for it, was because her son had loved my teen novel, The Absolutely True Diary of Hard-Time Indian. So she... Ah. You know, we had this thing that gets white people jobs, <laughs> where white people look at each other and go, you're white, I'm hiring you. But it was one of those times when two brown people had that. Right. It's happened like nine times yeah. in United States history. There's a Wikipedia entry about it. Yeah, it's like, you know, one of those... That book, can we just take a moment, the crowd clap, but like, that is one of my favorite books I've ever read, I have to say. The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian is just incredible, man. Good job on that. You know, I had no, I mean, I had a great career before that book. I've had a great career since then. I figure I'm going to have a lifelong legacy. I had no idea that I'd written the res catcher in the rye. I had no <laughs> idea. And really, I, I'm not overstating it. This book, you know, is everywhere. And I mean, it shows up everywhere. I mean, the airports and people are reading it nine years later. I don't want you though, Sherman, to get too high on your own supply because I've also noticed that on your website, you list some negative feedback from people who've read your books or maybe been to your events. Uh, on your Facebook page, you have one woman there who says, Sherman looked more Indian when his hair was long. I also look more Indian when I'm not smiling. <laughs> For the radio crowd, he has taken a very serious pose on. So Sherman, I want to give you a chance to respond because, you know, it's easy for people on the internet to just like lob insults, but I want to read you some actual feedback and then I would like you to respond. On uh, Reservation Blues, uh, an amazing book of yours, Mr. Alexi, tell you what, I'll stay out of the sweat lodges and your spirituality if you'll stay away from my spirituality and refrain from telling me my spiritual path. Is that like, do you get that feedback sometimes? White people saying, don't try to talk about our spirituality? It, it, it's invariably, I'm going to guess that that's a white guy who really loves Indians. Ah, uh, I see. He thinks he's down. Yeah, and he's been spending a lot of time in the sweat lodge, paying for it by some con man Indian or some con man pretending to be Indian who's been telling this white guy that he has spiritual power and that you know his long-lost ancestors had spiritual power and that he's a white guy in the long history of white guys pretending to be powerful Indians. Is there a long history? Of There's that? a long history of people pretending they have power based on indigenous of, of non-natives. co-opting things, Co-opting, yeah. I mean, the, there's entire... I mean, it's not as big now, but when I started writing in the late 80s and early 90s, there was this massive New Age movement right. uh, that coincided, and it always coincides, it's interesting, these movements of white people identifying with Native American culture I, always coincide with natives identifying with Native American culture and returning. So I know there's going to be a boom of New Age crap over the next year because of the Standing Rock protests. For the, next, for the next 20 years, you're going to be meeting white kids named Dakota. <laughs> okay, where in fact, I... there's probably one in somebody's belly in the room right now. <laughs> okay, so where do pro sports teams fit in in terms of shameless co-opting? You were oh. rooting very hard against Cleveland in the World Series oh, because of their, their name, the Indians, I, and, and their incredibly racist mascot who's known as Chief Wahoo. It, it's astonishingly racist. I mean... And, and the, you know, the thing is, only white people, only white liberals are surprised by Trump's rise to power and presidency. We brown people are in no way shocked that an overt racist might become president because we get to turn on national television and see 
a Sambo-looking Chief Wahoo on the sleeve. When they're batting, when, the, when they're batting, you're looking at a racist image of yourself. The most racist mainstream image possible of a Native American is on the sleeve of a professional baseball player in America's pastime, and 40 million people are looking at it, and 27 million of them don't think it's racist. So uh, uh, it, it's infuriating. And, yeah. and uh, Well, let me, let me ask you this. Do you think your kids are going to someday live in, in a country where that kind of stuff and where the Washington Redskins aren't called the Redskins? Like, is, is this something that you think will ever actually be dealt with properly? Or is this like sports fandom and, and lack of really just empathizing with other people's experience so ingrained that this is always going to be how it is? I think, I mean, 95% of teams that had racist mascots have changed them over the last, I mean, Stanford did it in the 70s. So uh, in their lifetime, certainly all these mascots are going to be gone. You think including Cleveland, including... including Cle if the, I was Cleveland, I would definitely be thinking curse. <laughs> right. <laughs> Side I note. mean, you get your ass beat by the Cubs. I mean, speaking as a hardcore, superstitious sports fan, yeah. and also, and also, no, I don't believe in magic. I'm not one of those kind of Indians. I don't. Uh, you know, I'm an atheist Indian. I don't believe in magic. But let me tell you, you know, when it started raining <laughs> during Game Seven, when it started raining in Game Seven, when it stopped the Indians' momentum of coming back in the bottom of the inning, and it stopped it cold. It started raining. So I swore to you, I, I was thinking, please pan outside the stadium, because right now, there's an old, rugged Indian dude <laughs> wearing a faded American Indian movement hat with a battered Free Leonard Peltier t-shirt, and he's dancing. <laughs> Who knew? It was Wounded Knee that yes, took down yes. the Cleveland team. Sherman Alexi, ladies and gentlemen, his new book is Thunderboy Jr. You're the best, man. Thank you. This week's show is brought to you in part by Amtrak, offering a full-service dining car and scenic views on the Coast Starlight to Seattle, Portland, and Los Angeles, connecting travelers to more than 500 destinations across America. See where the train can take you. More information at Amtrak.com. Please welcome back Shovels and Rope. Too damn early in the morning 
watching the world around me come alive And I need more fingers to count the ones I love This life may be too good to survive That's Shovels and Rope here on Livewire. You can find out more about what they're up to by going to their website, shovelsandrope.com. Thank you so much to everybody who helped make this show possible this week, including our fabulous guests, Sherman Alexi, Garrett Conley, and Shovels and Rope. Also, special thanks this week to Lori and Sam Ferraro. This show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, Alaska Airlines, and Amtrak. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon is our producer and editor. Jason Rouse is our announcer, and he wrote for this week's show. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, A. Walker Spring, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Big thanks to Revival Drum Shop and Carlson Audio. Special thanks this week to Amanda Bullock and the folks at Wordstock. Our development director is Kim Bergstrom. Our operations manager is Lauren Masterson. Laura Harden is our marketing manager. And Hannah Withers is our copywriter. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire is made possible by the generous support of our members. Special thanks this week to members Adam Lane and Robert Peacock. For more information about our show, how you can get our podcast, and how you can become a member of Livewire, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. PRI, Public Radio International. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.
from PRX.